I'd like to welcome our sponsor, FormAssembly. FormAssembly's all-in-one web form platform lets you create forms for just about any use case, from contact forms to donation forms, all while taking advantage of useful features such as notifications, e-signatures, and more. Not only that, but you can also connect data to systems you already use. FormAssembly integrates with Salesforce, Pardot, PayPal, and many other common solutions. You can find out how FormAssemblies help Salesforce customers optimize their data connection in a free ebook that we've linked in today's show notes. Whatever your data collection needs are, you can be sure that FormAssembly keeps your data secure with encryption at rest and in transit on all plans, plus compliance with GDPR, CCPA, and more regulations. At the end of the day, FormAssembly helps you save time, money, and effort while getting the maximum benefit out of the data you collect. And I'd remind you, when you support our sponsors, you support the show. Chris, right. Chris, you're going to tell me it works this time, right? Yeah, now it works. I don't know when I hit the start recording button, does it still work or not? That's the that's the point. But if your but, browser can break Skype, I am impressed. <laughs> I have no idea why, but. Uh, at least I think the browser and the Skype is used in the same audio input. I'm trying to do that. Yeah, so maybe, the same on mine. So I'm, yeah, <laughs> but I don't know. Let, let me hit the start recording. Just. Yep. Uh, can you still hear me? I can still hear you. Okay, I can still hear you. It's uh, a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Xi Xiao. This is yet another new Salesforce Way podcast episode. Today I'm sitting with a guest with me. His name's Chris Peterson. Hello, Chris. Howdy. How's it going? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good. Everything fine. How about you? Um, mildly annoyed by audio difficulties before we started, but otherwise I'm great. <laughs> yeah, we had some technical issues, but uh, everything's fine now. Um, so Chris, would you mind to introduce yourself before we start? Yeah, sure. So I am the director of product management for Apex at Salesforce. Um, before that, I was a lead engineer on the App Exchange engineering team, and before that, I was an architect at Financial Force. Ah, so I've been working in the Salesforce ecosystem Force. for quite a while at this point. Ah, yeah. I know Andy Fawcett was also coming from Financial Force. So you oh, were yes. okay. You were working in the same company before. I didn't know that. Yeah. So <laughs> since you bring that up, I actually just started reporting to Andy. Um, uh-huh. A few weeks ago, uh, really? so okay, it, it's it's a little bit interesting because we work together really closely at Financial Force, but I never reported to him. So <laughs> I constantly get the question of, "Oh, so you're reporting to Andy again?" And then I have to explain <laughs> that no, he he did technical leadership instead of people management at Financial Force, which is why he wrote so many good blog posts, so much open source code, etc. Mm. And this is my first time reporting to him officially, but not my first time getting into a technical de- debate with him. Ah, because the last time I met him, he told me he was the platform product manager. That's like Lightning platform, right? But Apex belongs to the Lightning platform, or yeah, the the, the specific terminology, um, as you've noticed, may change as there are different rebrandings. 
Yeah. But yes, so up until a few weeks ago, I was officially part of Lightning Platform, the group inside of Salesforce. Um, but then Andy and part of Wade's group now, Wade Wagner as well, is the platform developer services group. So the, there's a new charter specifically for uh, programmatic languages on the platform, which obviously is Evergreen Functions and Apex. Mm. Yeah. So we got moved around in that reorganization so that now I'm I'm with Andy's team. Uh, Evergreen Functions also rolls up to him. So mm. the platform programmatic services are now all in one product group. I see. But for your own responsibility, it's still in the scope of Apex only, right? Yeah. My job description in the last two years has not changed. It's been Apex the whole time. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I, <laughs> nothing materially changes except who signs off on my expense reports and that uh, I will be in more meetings about functions, which is probably a good thing. Mm, okay. How many people do you have in your team? Um, so Apex is... Rather than give you a specific number so that somebody can beat me up if it changes again, I'll say <laughs> that Apex is generally in the 10 to 15 range in terms of engineers. Mm-hmm. Depends on when you ask and what form of the team and what the specific mandate and charter is at the time. It was a little bit bigger during the new compiler project. It shrunk briefly for a little while when a couple people left and mm. we were didn't want to hold on to headcount that we couldn't fill right away. And then those kind of got reallocated later. But in, in the neighborhood of 10 to 15, depending on when you ask, yes. Okay. So could you also give us the brief introduction, like what things your team routinely do? We know we have these three releases per year, so I think your team's task is allocated to those three releases. And there's also weekly releases that have a lot of bug fixes in them. So it depends on what type of issue you're hitting. So we we do almost always have something in one of the weekly patch releases, although it's usually not something that you'll notice. Hmm. But fixing a GAC that popped up in, in enough customers that it looked like it was fairly seriously impacting their operations... Mm-hmm. If there's no technical risk to it, then that's something we do in a weekly patch. Oh. Um, if it's making a more fundamental change to the language or the behavior of the standard library, then that's definitely something where almost always we end up having to wait for a major release. And mm. usually, even if we're fixing bugs in the standard library, we'll version those fixes. Mm. So to get the bug fixes in Describe, for example, you would have to upgrade to the summer 20 version if we fixed a bug in summer 20 because what we've discovered is that people will actually rely on the bugs in the language so if we <laughs> fix them retroactively it breaks existing code yeah i know that it happened um how does your team actually collect uh, the requirement the the items put into each releases good question um a lot of it comes from customer feedback you know I hear a lot about how the language needs to be expressive more. That's something that's come up a lot on Twitter, people asking for generics, anonymous dinner classes. So that mm-hmm. type of customer feedback is definitely something we try and prioritize. So you, you mentioned Twitter. Twitter is also a channel for you to collect the feedbacks. Yeah, a huge one. Because oh, okay. Apex is fairly interesting in that pretty much everybody uses it. There's mm. like, I think the latest number is like over 200,000 orgs run Apex that are paying customers, not not including developer editions. So okay. we're looking at something that almost everybody uses. And so the breadth of people who send who have opinions on it and feedback is more than I would get through sales engineering. 
Mm. I would hear about new customers, especially larger ones that were what they were interested in through that channel. I'll Mm. hear about what people think is broken through support. I'll hear some feedback on the partner community about specific performance issues that affect partners more than enterprise customers. Um, But all of those channels of feedback really have some type of constraint or a target audience that they're not effective necessarily Mm. getting all types of unfiltered feedback staff level engineers at an enterprise customer that didn't get an executive to carry the torch on their little tiny feature that would improve quality of life. Mm. We want to make sure we catch those and something that's a little bit more accessible has helped with that. And a lot of it also stems from when I was a customer and a partner, I used to engage with the apex team on Twitter all the time. So kudos to Josh Kaplan, Rich Unger, Greg fee, uh, who all used to work on apex and all were really responsive and really taught me the value and how much of a difference it can make to a customer when you have that type of open communication channel. And now that I'm in their positions, it only feels fair to keep the tradition alive. Mm, Thanks for that. I'm also a Twitter user. I know how active you are there to listen to the users. How about the the voting website in the Trailblazer community? The ID Exchange? Is it? Yeah, I think it's the ID Exchange because... People say that developers are minorities, so we don't get enough voting numbers. Is that a concern? Yes and no. Um, it, I think that actually impacts partners more than it does for enterprise customers. because So there's the new idea exchange with the, the comparative ranking, and that went to market specifically targeting end users. Um, they do have some longer-term plans on targeting developers that I've talked to them about, but they're still a little bit hazy at the moment. So... Okay. The new idea exchange, I don't personally get a ton of feedback from. There are a few developer-centric features that, that end up there, but it's it's not targeting the pro-code audience today. Okay. Um, and that, that's fine. So the traditional idea exchange, which I think is more what you're referring to, without the comparative ranking, but just with traditional voting, mm-hmm. um, I do go through that usually once a release and look for ideas that are that make sense and the number of votes kind of helps justify a relative position on the roadmap. Mm-hmm. But if it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do, and it ends up on the backlog one way or another. Okay. So it's one of many waiting factors. Have I mm-hmm. heard about that this is a problem from other customers? Have I heard that this come, this come, came up at Meet the Developers at Dreamforce? Did somebody tweet at me? Did somebody email me? Have I heard from an account executive or a sales engineer or a support engineer? And so th- the votes are one factor, but really it's... It's more likely more likely that I have like a quality of life bucket in each release. And especially on a lot of those smaller ideas that that tended to be quality of life rather than game-changing ideas, right. um, we pick the ones that we think will be the most impactful. And votes can sway our opinion on what's the most impactful, but it's not like we're sitting in front of a report of what has the most votes, this is what we're doing this release. There's... I understand. There's, a, there's multiple humans in the loop. Otherwise, that process would be interesting. Yeah, yeah, I know. Then, how does the team really to implement, you know, test, release these things? And even sometimes we do need to roll back in case something bad happens. So, could you walk us through this process? Yeah, you probably heard about Hammer at some point in the past. Yes, that's one of the developer podcast episodes talking about that. Yep, You're talking to uh, Rupa, who used to be on the Hammer team. So Hammer is something that we spend quite a lot of time working with as a final check that nothing's going to break in Apex. 
Mm-hmm. It obviously can't cover 100% of things. It can't cover user interface interactions. Some of the community site changes because hammer tests aren't run in a community context. They're an apex test that can pretend, but isn't always 100%. Um, hammer isn't a 100% guarantee that, that nothing is wrong. But it is a very, very important process in catching tiny little mistakes that otherwise could ship and impact people. Hmm. What we usually find is an uncovered edge case or something like that in Hammer. And that is really the, the, the end of the release. So internally, we have feature freeze where you stop working on feature work and work on stabilizing the release. Hammer picks up the changes basically the day after feature freeze and then runs with those. And then we have a couple weeks to triage the results before the actual release freeze and before it starts going live on GS0 and pre-releases. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the Apex team, really between feature freeze and release freeze is majority hammer triage. Mm-hmm. We look at all of the hammer diffs, and there is some machine learning post-processing that goes on that cuts down on the volume of noise, but usually a human looks at each one of those and we have a discussion about if it's intentional, if it's expected, if there was some sort of metadata change in the org that happened while Hammer was running that Mm. might have offset the results. Um, But usually there's three, four, five, six actionable bugs that come out of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of those would be very painful to fix after the release went out. Because as we were just talking about, people start to rely on bugs. And if we start making changes in the runtime of the standard library without a new major version to go along with it, that could break somebody else. Mm. So, there's peril in fixing bugs too aggressively, which is really one of the places that I love Hammer the most. Okay. For the people who don't know Hammer, it's a tool only for Salesforce internal teams to use, right? Externals yes. cannot really use that. Not, not at the moment. There are some, some open ideas around that, about making it available for ISV partners, but nothing I can announce or talk about at the moment. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah, Hammer is run internally. What what happens is one of the replicas of you know, the, the secondary data center's backup is upgraded to the new release after it's disconnected from the internet, so it can't actually make changes to anything for real. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's upgraded to the new release, and the tests are run on against the old release and the new release, but basically okay. with the same state otherwise. I see. And then the diffs are compared. So if you have a test that fails beforehand, but it fails differently after, we actually get a hammer bug for that. So if your tests are failing, they should continue to fail the same way. If your (laughs) tests are passing and they start failing, that's a problem. Okay. If your tests are failing and they start passing, that's also a problem. (laughs) Yeah, it's the state. You always need to compare, right? Yeah. But it runs across effectively every customer org, all paying orgs with a handful of very limited exceptions whenever there's specific challenges, but Effectively, it runs against all paying customer orgs, mm. all tests. And so it runs millions and millions and millions of tests. Mm. And that gives us a huge amount of confidence in the release and feedback about customer impact that we otherwise wouldn't have. Mm. I understand that in 2018, we had this new Apex compiler. Yes. Was it a huge news? To me, that's the moment I joined Salesforce. I had no idea there was a new compiler until yesterday. Somebody told me. I was asking, do you think there's some good question to ask Chris? They said, why not the Apex compiler? I said, what is that? (laughs) So I actually joined the Apex team right at the end of that project. So I basically got to walk in and go, all right, turn it on. 
well, that was easy. I don't know what the big deal was. And then everybody threw things at me because they spent four years working on the new compiler. Um, <laughs> so I get to take all the credit and did none of the work, which is always the best place to be. Okay. Uh, but the Apex compiler, so Apex started out as a pure runtime interpreted language back in 2006 when it was created. Mm-hmm. That had a number of issues with, there was no capability in the language for anything reflective which meant that things like JSON deserialize, where you pass it a type token, just were inherently not supported because it, it was so limited in terms of the runtime. It also meant that there was a really a large amount of heap overhead as the language ran. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was 2012 or something like that. It was like before I worked at Salesforce. Uh, but back in that day, that era, there was a, an increase in the Apex heap size from three to six megabytes. And that was when Apex went from a pure runtime inter- interpreted language to a compiled language that has some runtime interpreter for injected attributes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was the first time that, that Apex really evolved materially as a language in terms of runtime and compiler. But that project was done to keep full compatibility, including any sort of behavior quirks and bugs. And mm-hmm. when you're trying to, I think Dan Appleman said, replace the engine on a jet while it's in the air, there's always constraints on what you can do. And mm. you aren't always entirely happy with the way the product, the end product turns out from a maintainability perspective. Right. Um, it was also just inherently coupled to our code base in the core platform. It could not be extracted. It could not be run off the platform, even in any sort of limited capacity. It was joined at the hip and just had its tentacles everywhere, which made sense at the time. But mm-hmm. when the newer development tool strategy started of language servers, that meant that there was going to be no Apex support. That would mean no VS Code support for auto-completion. That would mean no PMD tooling. Oh. Um, and so one of the, the big justifications, one of, definitely not the only, for rewriting the Apex compiler was to make it something that was a standalone compiler so that a proper language server could be built and distributed. And so okay. the... When you run Visual Studio Code with all the Salesforce and DX extensions, it's actually running the Apex compiler as part of the language server locally. It's not doing anything with the bytecode because you're still missing our runtime, but Mm -hmm. all of the code completion and validation is using the real actual compiler. Hmm. I understand language server was the idea coming from Microsoft, wasn't it? It's It's their open standard, yeah. Yeah, and the Visual Studio Code started to use that and then get it very popular. So what, what is this language server for Apex especially? So the language server is just a, an open protocol for building pluggable modules for different languages that aren't directly embedded into an IDE or other tooling. Okay. And so it, it's a protocol for talking to something that provides information about the language, refactoring, syntax checking, uh, all kinds of error information, auto-completion. And so it's, it's a standard API for that. A compiler in the cloud. You're talking to the cloud to get the information back? No, it's, it runs locally. So the, the language server and Visual Studio Code both run on your computer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's an open standard so that language servers are pluggable. So when they made Lightning Web Components, they also introduced a language server for that. Mm-hmm. And so Visual Studio Code doesn't inherently have Apex and LWC support. But because it's an open standard for language servers that Visual Studio Code understands, plugging in an Apex and LWC language server means that you get that type of functionality in it. 
Okay. So the the old style was like TextMate language bundles if you wanted to add syntax support to a new tool. But that was really limited to just syntax. You couldn't do refactoring suggestions. You couldn't do any deeper introspection. Mm -hmm. And the language server protocol added a lot more capability on top of that model of extensible language support, Mm -hmm. but in a standardized and more powerful way. Okay. Uh, And like Nate Totten would actually be a, a person to talk to for a lot more detail because I haven't spent as much time with like the language server protocol as I'd like. So yeah, Nate, Nate Totten's group actually owns most of that. I'm just, I'm parroting what I've learned along the way. Yeah, I know he's really active collecting the Visual Studio code plugin feedback as well in the Twitter. Yeah, yeah. yeah so his team owns the the language server wrapper around the Apex compiler. So my team mm-hmm. has it's internally it's a Git repo that they then take along with a bunch of dependencies, package up into a single self-contained jar file, and mm-hmm. added the language server. API compatibility on top of it. So they built a a wrapper bridge compatibility layer between the Apex compiler and the language server spec. Mm. This episode is sponsored by Claydom. If you build on Salesforce, you know writing secure code can be really hard. Claydom makes it easy for you. Claydom plugs into your Git repos in seconds and automatically protects you from hundreds of security vulnerabilities such as CRUD FLS violations, code injections, vulnerable third-party libraries, and more. Clayton works with GitHub, Bitbucket, GitLab, and Azure DevOps. Go to getclayton.com slash salesforceway to get one month of secure development essentials for free. It's getclayton.com slash salesforceway. You can also find the link in our show notes. Clayton, build on Salesforce, stay secure. I see that is kind of like an untangle, this big monolithic compiler thing, right? And then you yeah. somehow let it to align with this new product or the language server so that it's more flexible. Yeah. It also made it just easier for us to do things like change the definition of annotations. In the old compiler, mm-hmm. they were much more hard-coded. You know, annotations and all their parameters were something that took a lot more effort to modify. Mm-hmm. Um, and pretty much every release since I took over as PM, we've made some change to a new annotation for flow support or mm-hmm. a new attribute on an existing annotation. Mm-hmm. And that used to be a fairly intensive piece of work. And now I actually have like that file in the GitHub in our Git repo bookmarked, so I can be like, "Oh, okay, there's the spec for it," because the code that describes the annotation rules is so elegant and simple. Even though I'm terrible at understanding compiler internals, so mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, yeah, that obviously is how it works. I don't have to go bug an engineer; it just makes sense. Okay. And so that type of quality of life and ease of maintainability was also a big factor in the new compiler. I see. How far we are from a local compiler, Apex compiler. So you have a local compiler today. You just can't do anything with the output. The language server is compiling Apex. It's just not saving the bytecode anywhere. Um, but the runtime is joined at the hip with Salesforce today. The messaging namespace that sends email, that doesn't use SMTP. That writes to an or- a table in the database that's then picked up by a whole separate service that runs in the Salesforce data center for sending email. Okay. And 
So you wouldn't be able to send email locally because you don't have a swarm of mail servers that are already pre-configured to handle picking up mail from the database and then actually sending it asynchronously. You would be missing chatter because you don't have those Java APIs running locally. You'd be missing, so the whole Connect API namespace wouldn't work. You'd be missing DML semantics because there's a layer of the platform called the Universal Data Dictionary that actually is our object relational mapping and schema broker layer. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't have that. So you wouldn't have any knowledge of S objects. Uh, and so the idea of, of trying to run the subset of Apex that remains locally mm-hmm. is something that's so materially different than what I, Apex actually is in practice that I'm, I don't think it actually has as much value as you would expect. Okay. There are many features, so we do need to talk to the Salesforce backend, right? Otherwise, yeah. it's... And okay. when you think about the structure at Salesforce, it tends to be small, empowered teams. My team doesn't actually own the messaging namespace that sends email. The email infrastructure group at Salesforce does because they own the underlying mail sending logic. So if we try to re-implement their APIs just for, in mm-hmm. Apex, they've already exposed a Java API internally before they had the Apex APIs. Mm-hmm. So it was really a request of take the existing Java APIs and write an Apex wrapper around them so people can call them. But okay. the underlying service is still inherently part of the Salesforce core app server, which mm. is not at all a lightweight container. Okay. Well, maybe one day, we, because as a local compiler that has all the features that we can really use, at least the most of the features, it really is a compelling feature that uh, all the developers really want to have. It help us so much, if possible. Yeah, the, in a literal sense, it's possible, but I don't think what you get is what you're looking for. If you just want to te- run unit tests on arithmetic, mm-hmm. yeah, that could probably run locally, but that's not what you're writing Apex for. You're writing it for triggers. You're writing it for invocable actions that interact with flow. You're writing Apex REST services. Mm-hmm. And without the other elements of the platform that empower those, they're not really that useful. I get the point. Um, yeah. The biggest hope in that area is probably Evergreen Functions Apex support, because for that we will have to have a limited subset of the Apex standard library supported, because it's not the traditional Salesforce execution environment. You don't have a synchronous database transaction. Things will be written back through APIs. So it's mm-hmm. a fairly material difference from how Apex traditionally runs, but we still have a lot of the services available. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the Apex standard library will be available there, but not all of it. And so mm-hmm. that's the, the first time that the execution environment of Apex is radically changing. And that is a potential step in the direction that you're talking Could to. Could you, first of all, to brief us, what is this Evergreen? I know it, it was coming, but a lot of people don't know what it really is. Sure. So Evergreen is taking Heroku and Salesforce platform and uniting them, not just in terms of theoretical capabilities to interact, but as a first-class citizen, as a true metadata type. So one of the goals of Evergreen Functions is that they'll be able to be packageable. So you can write an Evergreen Function in Java, JavaScript, Apex, and package it in a managed package. And then that would be available to the package consumers. And so it's it's really taking taking the managed aspect of Heroku Mm -hmm. and making it so that it's managed that there's a new variant of it that's managed by Salesforce. Obviously, classic mm-hmm. Heroku is never going to go away. It's a wonderful tool. But if you want to bridge Salesforce and Heroku today, you can do that, definitely. And a lot of times, it's not that bad. 
In fact, a lot of times it's great. But there's also scenarios where you want special permissions. So you may want a service that's running on Heroku to always run with the user permissions of this specification, no matter who's invoking it. And if you passed a session ID from, from Apex and Salesforce over to Heroku, it would have the user's permission and not the permissions of the service that you would like it to run on behalf of. And so making it so that there's the notion of service level permissioning is something that's done to kind of interact and improve the integration story between Salesforce and Heroku so that mm-hmm. it's, if you already have a big investment in Salesforce and Apex and Visual Force and Lightning, and you would like to add Heroku to augment that without fundamentally changing your architecture, and you'd like to minimize the number of hurdles because you already like your architecture, Evergreen functions are going to be wonderful for that because they solve a lot of these problems for you without any custom work and will manage the Heroku infrastructure as well so that if you want a Lambda processing language to be integrated with Apex as a first-class citizen, Hmm. that's what's going to be really interesting. But uh, I naively understand it as a hybrid solution. Yes. Because at the moment, uh, Apex is the only native language on the platform, the Lightning platform, right? So in the future, we could have Java, we could have Ruby, JavaScript, all running together in a hybrid mode. Yeah, they'll, they'll be running on Heroku infrastructure, so it'll be Apex. running inside of a Heroku dyno. Uh, Apex will actually be, in in the context of Evergreen Functions, Apex will be supported. So Apex will be running on a Heroku dyno. If you want. Yes. So you can use Apex, but it's going to be a little bit different than traditional Apex because it's not tied to the database transaction in the same way. So mm-hmm. there's still some details being worked out, but Apex will very definitely be supported in this model. It'll just be a little bit different than traditional oh. Apex in, in a few ways, mostly around database interaction. Okay, so the current Apex running on the platform still remains, but if yeah, you want, no, no you have there. Apex on. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. In fact, I'm excited. So one of the problems I have is that a lot of large customers keep asking, how do I buy more batch Apex capacity? Hmm. And there is a finite pool of asynchronous capacity, and sometimes there's a little bit of leeway, sometimes there's a little bit of extra that we can turn up limits temporarily or even permanently if they're modest um, mm-hmm. on number of asynchronous executions or occasionally number of concurrent batch jobs. It's, but there really is a hard limit just based off the capacity model of the core platform, where if you wanted to do another billion a- async transactions a day, that isn't something that the elastic scaling is there for very effectively right now. And a lot of that is tied to how it's synchronously part of a database transaction adding another billion long-lived database transactions is not a trivial operation. Um, and so that's one of the areas I'm really excited about Evergreen on, is if you want to scale up beyond what Batch Apex can offer, mm-hmm. and, but still have it integrated with Salesforce as a first-class citizen, um, they're going to be really promising for that. I'm really excited about that. Another one is Apex is not designed for processing binary files. And the people I've seen who've tried to do things like process zip files in Apex, the zip, like the zip file library that the community has written for Apex that does string manipulation and then base64s it as a way of manipulating mm-hmm. binary files, okay. not efficient, not, not at all. And so mm-hmm. there, there are workarounds for doing binary file processing in Apex, but it's not what we're designed for. It's not what we're good at. It's not what we're optimizing for. Mm-hmm. So if you want to process a gigabyte CSV file, you want to do that on Heroku, and then 
take the processed results and write them into Salesforce. And so that's the type of things that I'm seeing immediate adoption on evergreen functions once it's out for, is the places where Apex has been shoehorned in, even though it was the wrong choice, because it was the only thing that was native to the platform. Mm-hmm. And now there is a better tool for those jobs that's also effectively equally native to the platform. So Apex is, is running 105 billion transactions a month at this point, just from paying orgs, not including others. Um, our growth rate on transactions is 53% year-over-year growth right now. So the volume of Apex growth is massive. And mm-hmm. at some level, it's almost concerning. This just huge number of transactions, this huge volume of growth. Mm-hmm. On one hand, it's very encouraging. And it means I'm working on a product that's impactful and empowering. On yeah. another, I worry about apex being used in ways that it's not effective at at scale and the problems Mm -hmm. that that can cause and so in a sense i'm actually really excited for evergreen functions because if i can slow the growth of apex adoption slightly by offloading Mm -hmm. the things it's bad at that's actually really good for the health of apex that's really good for the health of the platform and it opens a lot of doors to new innovation that are really exciting for me Mm -hmm. Um, and i've looked at flow in a similar way actually so i did a presentation at dreamforce of you know Apex and Flow showdown. But then the whole presentation was about how you can integrate Apex and Flow very effectively and have better results than each one individually. And in the same way, I'm kind of looking at Flow and the improved work around invocable actions that they've been doing, supporting mm-hmm. generic S objects, supporting concrete Apex, complex Apex types. Um, there's a pilot program for LWC-based invocable action configurations in the Flow Designer. So they've been investing heavily with some help from Apex in making it so that Apex actions are first-class citizens in Flow that are as powerful as anything we could build ourselves in Java. Mm-hmm. Um, and because there's a lot of Apex that is really copy-and-pasted code that takes a SQL query and bridges the results to a Lightning component, a Visual Force component, et cetera, where there's an argument that that isn't the right place for a code solution, a low-code mm-hmm. tool that has a little bit of code augmenting it for the particularly innovative or interesting or challenging or for surgical security escalation, what have you, is a better model. And it's something that's easier for admins to maintain. And so Mm -hmm. I'm actually kind of excited in the same way to offload some of the places where Apex has been used because it was the only tool historically to -hmm. flow, where it's easier to configure and easier for admins to manage instead of an admin writing a spec that looks like a flow and handing it to a developer. Mm -hmm. They can build a flow and have the one black box of an Apex action that does the heavy lifting in terms of system mode or in terms of security sensitive or performance sensitive operations. I see, and so I'm trying to look at the platform holistically because I'm not at all worried about my adoption being too low. Hmm. I'm worried about my adoption <laughs> being too high for the wrong reasons. Okay. I get it. This is a really good uh, you know, conversation with you because before this, I had no idea. I thought you were worried that because Apex was the only native one, and now it's like taking the weight out. I thought you had some concern, but it's more positive in in a way here. It'll make my job easier because I will deal with less escalations where, hey, we want to process 50 megabyte files and it doesn't work right. Yeah, Yeah. sorry, that's that's the way the limits work. Because it seems to me that um, for the Salesforce developers, now we have more people from the other technical stack joining us, like Java, Ruby, you know, those JavaScript. So they are joining the force. And for the architect point of view, it's more like a microservice now that you need to build on top 
you know, to form a, a good architect. So that's not an easy task. It also, I, I mean, I personally look at it as more of a spectrum of there is a level of com- comfort with customization and technical complexity that is a wide spectrum. You know, you could try and define like three or four personas along it, but at the end of the day, there's somebody at basically every point of the spectrum. We have enough customers that, that that's just true at this point. Where at one end you have pure declarative environments. The only interaction they might have with a developer is occasional contract engagements, and even those might be hard for them to get. And that's definitely something that is a very real thing in the small, medium business. Even small, medium enterprise, Salesforce developers are hard to justify having a full-time engineer with a very specialized skill set unless you really are at the scale where you have a full-time person's worth of work that you can justify. And so in that type of context, I mean, that's why Workflow was so popular. That's why Salesforce took off as a platform is it was really easy to customize and do some basic enhancements to without needing a developer. And so that, that aspect is still alive and well. That's a core part of what we think about. And that means you have process builder, you have flow, you have workflow, you have custom objects, and you're not going to touch anything programmatic, but that's a non-trivial part of our customer base. And what Apex there is needs to be something that is long-lived without a ton of maintenance work. And so that's where I think about invocable actions and flow being really useful is you can make a well-specified, well-defined, highly configurable Apex action that's integrated into a flow flow invocable. Mm -hmm. And that can have a really long shelf life without any ongoing developer maintenance, but it can be reused by admins in flow contexts. And so when you do have a developer engagement, you're multiplying the amount of of return you get from that if you Mm -hmm. do it right in that type of low-code environment. And then you start to scale up and you get Apex-centric orgs where they probably won't use Flow or Process Builder because they like to have Apex be the center of transaction control and save order, but they Mm -hmm. might use Flow from Apex. I've seen a lot of customers where they have a lot of Apex already. They have a lot of investment in Apex triggers. They want to add Flow, so they add calling the Flow interview class in Apex to their existing triggers for fine-grained control over where it is in the save order. Mm. And so there's this type of enhancement on top of a programmatic base with configurable by admins flexibility. And then mm. you get to the really high-scale, just really tightly governed environments, which is actually how I would describe the App Exchange org. It was entirely programmatically driven because we had millions of users and a huge volume of requests and yeah. it's a public facing website. So we've really had to have a good CI model where everything was source control is the source of truth. Indeed. And when you get to that end of the spectrum, Apex is the tool for working within the transaction. It's the tool for writing a custom controller for LWC where you have trusted business processes. It's the tool for writing triggers. Um, so Apex will pretty much always be the king of doing logic in the transaction if you're at that end of the spectrum. Mm. But what we've learned is holding open a giant database transaction is really a model that has a limited scalability point and at a certain point starts to be counterproductive when you realize that Apex's 10-second synchronous CPU limit, you don't want to wait 10 seconds after you click a button for something to happen. So to make things scale beyond what we have today, where it's in the transaction, we need things that are event-driven, that are asynchronous, and that run in a different model. So Apex is going to stay king of owning the transaction, transactional mm-hmm. processing inside the Salesforce platform. 
But that's not always the tool you want to use. There's a lot of things that you should and could defer. And that's where platform events are really popular. You can still use Apex to do asynchronous events that way at, at a fairly large scale. Um, and I see evergreen functions kind of fitting into a different part of that same model of get non-critical path work out of the transaction for the sake of performance and scalability mm-hmm. and run it in whatever the right tool is. And that could still be Apex running on functions. It could be Java if that's the developers you have in-house. If you don't have a dedicated Apex dev staff, mm-hmm. it's hard to justify doing that at certain points on the spectrum. And so I'm not worried at all because this spectrum is massive and has a spot for Apex to have a glorious future at every point in it. That's good and to know. When we look at it holistically, it's a healthier position for Apex too, because then it, I don't need to introduce new limits because you're not being incentivized to jam too much stuff into the transaction. Mm-hmm. So we can make it more developer friendly. We can make it more end user friendly by being performant and we mm-hmm. can set the right incentives so that we aren't having to fight with limits all the time. So it's, it's a better mm-hmm. experience across the board to have these new tools that are better fit for purpose in some of these use cases. Great. Thanks for sharing this. I'm more happy than when I heard this uh, Evergreen platform and the way that Apex developers are going to. Hi, this conversation continues on the next episode. See you next week.